I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. Social change movements have been part of our country's DNA for hundreds of years, from the abolitionist movement of the 1800s, the suffragist movement that culminated in women gaining the right to vote in 1920, or the civil rights movement that gained widespread support in the 1960s and whose work continues to this day. Whether you are a social change activist involved in the nonprofit or philanthropy world, or just have an interest in what it takes for the arc of justice to bend, you'll want to hear our conversation with today's guest. Nell Edgington is based in Austin, Texas, and has traveled coast to coast in her quest to guide social change warriors in realizing their full power and enormous capability. Born and raised in Minnesota with a professional background that includes time at PBS's national headquarters and at the Central Texas Food Bank, Nell has been president of management consulting group Social Velocity since its founding in 2008. She brings a sense of joy and optimism to her work, as you will soon find out, and this past spring brought the publication of her book, Reinventing Social Change, Embrace Abundance to Create a Healthier and More Equitable World. That book contains a radical vision that I'm delighted to discuss with her. She's also a fan of Janelle Monet and Robert Frost, so stay tuned for more on that. Hi, I'm Nell Edgington from Social Velocity, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming book, Reinventing Social Change. The book is written for social change leaders just like you. Whether you're a nonprofit CEO or executive director, head of a foundation, a program officer, a corporate sponsorship director, if you move money and people to social change, then the book Reinventing Social Change is for you. You and I met, I think, originally through the Center for Effective Philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And I've watched your commentary about the field for a while, which I think is very insightful and also different. And then that has emerged lately in the form of a book where you've written about the field from a perspective that I, by the way, deeply share, but I don't hear a lot about. You're writing about what it's like to be in the social change sphere and how to be human in the context of that. And a, a place I'd love to begin is a quote that you used in a column you wrote for the Center for Effective Philanthropy from the novelist and biographer Jay Perini, who told a story about Robert Frost. And it clearly resonates for you. It resonated for me. Would you start us off by reading that, please, and telling I us would. that story? So the quote is, an old friend of Robert Frost's was driving him home on a moonlit August night with huge stars in the sky. The friend mused, on a night like this, I keep thinking that life is so short and there's so little time. Frost put a hand on his arm and said, it's the other way around, you know. There's so much time more than anyone could ever need. You know, in this quote, it's about the scarcity of time that we just, you know, we have such limited time. But it's really, if you live your life, you know, with an open heart and an open mind and just open to all the various experiences that you'll encounter, you have more than enough time. There's an abundance of time. And the reason I think it relates so well to the social change sector is because that sector is so steeped in scarcity. 
And I think there is such an opportunity to realize the abundance that exists. The abundance is there of money, of people that want to change the world, of resources, of all kinds of things. But social change leaders struggle to access that abundance. Yeah. Let's actually start off by looking at some of your critique of the sector itself. So there is this world that sometimes gets referred to as the nonprofit sector. Foundations are a part of it. I like to refer to it as the social change sector because that's what it should be about. You know, that's the idea of what we do as opposed to a tax status. But you describe the sector as essentially broken. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And would you tell us a little bit more about why you think that is? You know, what do you mean by broken? The social change sector itself is broken basically because of this idea of scarcity that is such an ethos in the sector. Social change leaders who have a vision for a better world are denied the access to money, the value that's placed on other sectors. There are so many limits and hurdles put in social change leaders' way that that breaks the system. If we truly want to create a better world, if we truly want to create social change, we need to make it easier for those leaders that have this vision. But we do everything we can to make it harder. You're describing a reality in which there is scarcity, and yet you're challenging the notion of scarcity. And so for somebody working in the sector who says, yeah, you're right, and the solution is more resources, but I don't have abundance presently, Mm -hmm. how do you help people wrap their minds around that? So the first step is to believe that abundance is even possible, which brings us back to the Jay Pernini quote. If you can just open the possibility that maybe there is abundance out there. So just for example, let's talk about money because that's that, you know, ever pervasive fear in the sector is is a lack of, it is the thing. It's a lack of money, right? There's a lack of money in the social change sector. But if you look at our overall economy, there's an enormous amount of money. Billionaires have gotten so much wealthier during the pandemic, right? right? Money's out there. Abundance is out there. The problem is the social change sector isn't reaching it. So you come from this sector. You know, I think it's really important to say you're writing from experience. You you know what you're talking about. You spent your early years as a PBS mm-hmm. in both D.C. and Austin. You've also been director of development at a Texas food bank, which I didn't know. What did you take from these experiences that all these years later came to mind as you were writing Reinventing Social Change? It's just that pervasive ethos of just thinking we're not worthy. We don't have enough. It's got to be a struggle. This work has just got to be a struggle. That's just the way it is. That's the way it always has been and always will be. And honestly, that's why you know I got so frustrated that I left my positions within the the nonprofit sector itself and started Social Velocity because I felt there just, there has to be a better way. And I can't impact that within an individual organization itself. I am a consultant to nonprofits and philanthropists. So I help nonprofit and philanthropic leaders navigate this exact course that I'm articulating. So I help them understand the scarcity that's putting that they're putting in their way, how to scale that to more effectively achieve the social change they seek. You write about the importance of joy in the work. You reflect on the joy that you've had at moments in the work. 
Tell us a little bit more about what you're thinking there and what why you think it's important. This was a long road for me as well. You know, I I have, <laughs> you know, a very much I'm very much a diehard type A workaholic personality yeah. and have been, you know, for the majority of my career. But I reached a point and I talk about this in the book, you know, shortly after the Trump election where I just I had to go radio silent and I had to, you know, just sort of take a step back and take care of myself because I was so burned out by what I saw as the battle. And so from that, creating some space and kind of going inward, I reconnected with the joyful aspects, like what brings you joy to life? And I think this is so important for social change leaders. You know, these warriors that are on the front lines of trying to heal this broken planet, it is so important to reconnect back to what makes you human and your joy is what makes you human. What do you love about the world? What, you know, brings you passion and energy? And if you disconnect from that, your work becomes so much harder. You're so much more likely to burn out and you're so much more likely to just see scarcity everywhere. Yeah, and so if you can log, it is. So yeah. if you can reconnect back to that joy and passion, you can be so much more effective at achieving your mission. One of the quotes from your book is that we are infinitely more powerful in creating social change or really in doing anything when we approach it from a place of joy. And is that mm -hmm. what you mean, that that process connects us back to our power? It, it absolutely does, right? I believe joy is really sort of your GPS to your center or to what you, you know, are uniquely here to do, what your purpose is. When you find that joy, that's, you know, your body and your soul saying, yes, yes, this is for you. And that, that gives you that energy, that power to really create change and to create something valuable in this world. I can hear in my head, the voices of dozens of people that I've worked with and that I've encountered who right now may be saying, look, I actually don't have time. I'm constantly working around the clock. There's never an off switch, especially since the pandemic. I'm mm -hmm. underfunded. You know, nobody gives me enough money. I'm exhausted. I am burned out. And joy's a nice idea, <laughs> but there isn't space for it in my life. How did they get from there to what you're describing? I think everyone has to reach a point at which it's no longer sustainable, where you say, this isn't working anymore. I can't continue to kill myself working 80 hours a week at this job, feeling like there's no money. You have to reach that sort of breaking point at which you say there's got to be a better way and start to ask for help, start to look for answers outside yourself. That's the path that can take you there to say, maybe this isn't sustainable. Maybe killing myself isn't going to achieve my mission. Really profound statement, by the way, maybe killing myself isn't going to help me achieve my mission, because I do think a lot of folks in this work are so passionate about it. It's not just that social change leaders themselves are putting all this pressure on themselves and, you know, this whole scarcity mindset. It's the way the sector is set up. It's the historical roots of the right. sector yeah. that has made it apparent and been internalized by social change leaders that we're not good enough. We're not valuable enough. We're not as good as the Mark Zuckerbergs or the Jeff Bezos right. or the whoever's. Right. We don't deserve that kind of money or that kind of luxury or whatever that is. That becomes internalized and it just feeds that scarcity monster. The sector came out of 
the charitable sector, right? And it's still mm-hmm. thought of as the charitable sector. And the the roots of it included an expectation by wealthy people that the folks engaged in it would be volunteers or would work for close to nothing. Mm-hmm. And that mindset actually hasn't gone away. And now it's become manifested in the context of a culture that cares most about money mm-hmm. as you're not as good as the people making the big bucks. Let's go back, though, in time and talk about you growing up. You knew when you were 14 (laughs) that you wanted to do this. Tells me that either you were crazy or really (laughs) farsighted. Probably both. (laughs) Yeah, so which was it? You know, I would say I had no idea what the social change sector was, none of that terminology or anything like that. But You know, I grew up in Minnesota, which is still near and dear to my heart because it is such a community-oriented place. You take care of folks, you give your clothes to the goodwill, you you know serve at soup kitchens. You, it's just part of daily life. But then, when I was fourteen, went to a week-long church camp at a, a homeless shelter where we worked at a homeless shelter. And by the end of that week, I just knew this was where I was meant to be, not necessarily in a homeless shelter, but helping to fix systems that would allow people to be homeless and to be hungry. That just, to me, was wrong. And and there was something to fix there, and I wanted to be part of that. Like a lot of women entering the field, you experienced a version of it that many men in the field haven't experienced. And you write about this in the book, about the role of sexism in the sector and in undervaluing the work of the sector. Can you talk a little bit about that? The charitable sector came, emerged from the benevolence movements of the 18th and 19th centuries, where it was women, the one opportunity in the public sphere that women were allowed was to do charitable work. And they did that work basically on pennies that were afforded to them from the men that controlled the business and the government sector. And that's largely the same today. 75% of the nonprofit workforce is made up of women. And, you know, as we all know, men, for the most part, control the business and, and government sectors where most of the money flows to the nonprofit sector. So that structure is still largely the same. And I think that's where we get some of this ethos about not putting as much value on the nonprofit sector, the scarce resources, et cetera. Do you see women beginning to change that? Is there an increased willingness to tackle that old model and the and the stereotypes underlying it? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. And, and I actually see this more broadly in society overall, that there's this rising up of feminine energy or, you know, sort of female leadership that, you know, I think is going to create, you know, this equal playing ground where both men and women are leading and working together to create a more just and equitable world. We have really gotten off track as a, as a world, and we need to really step up and speak our voice and, and show a better way to lead. Yeah. How has it been for you, by the way, stepping out in the way that you are right now and writing about the sector as a woman who's been a thought leader in it for a while? Tell us about the reaction you're getting and how you're navigating that yourself. I think the biggest reaction I'm getting is sort of a a deep breath from folks, uh, a Mm -hmm. feeling that they're being seen and being heard. Uh, Someone just uh, this morning on Twitter 
tweeted something about the book that, you know, it just felt like for the first time someone was sort of speaking their language and sort of yeah. articulating what they live and breathe every day, but isn't really being talked about. And that honestly is why I wrote the book. There's all of this, I think, recognition internally that something's wrong, but we're not having the big game-changing conversations about it. And I think power comes from that. So that's been fantastic. But I'll also admit it's challenging for me to reach out, you know, to sort of promote my book, to write op-eds around it, you know, to be on podcasts right. talking about these things, because I know there's controversy here. I know some of these ideas are scary and different. And so that is challenging. Based on the reaction you've gotten, what feels scariest to people, do you think? The undermining of the entire system. Think, oh, that know, would do it. Yeah, that would be scary. <laughs> yeah, that might. I'll just give you an example. A big way that money is raised in the nonprofit sector is through galas and events, mm-hmm. which I have an enormous distaste for. I do as well. <laughs> Because to me, it's just reinforcing the broken system of here are the people over here that have all the money and the luxury, and here are the people doing the work. And, you know, we're going to cater to them over the course of an evening and make them feel really good about themselves. And then maybe they'll give us, you know, a $5,000 check. To me, that whole system is so broken. But so many people benefit and profit from that system. What's actually happening there, it's a power imbalance. And are we really willing to recognize that? and to change that power imbalance. Mm There is something profoundly icky about that dynamic, Mm -hmm. you know, if I can use a technical term. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Is that actually a remediable thing in our society? Oh, it absolutely is. And I think you were already starting to see that, right? The pandemic has laid bare all of the ickiness, right? Like we are seeing it in stark relief, how badly we treat people of different colors, of different races, of different genders, of different abilities, right? And so I think the nonprofit social change sector is sort of a microcosm of that. I think capital campaigns are another example of this. We raise all of this money to have this beautiful building with plaques all around it, you know, heralding these amazing donors and, you know, throwing these events to thank them. It's more about building the monolith or building the cathedral to sort of celebrate the wealth and the relationships as opposed to achieving some social change with Mm. that money. Status quos have a powerful way of reinforcing themselves. So I'm not surprised that you're encountering that. Well, let's talk about your model, because I think, you know, you actually give a structured approach to folks like me and to other organizational leaders as we think about how to shift our mindsets from scarcity to abundance. You focus on three main steps, the first of which is moving from complaining to action. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that, about what that step looks like and how you've seen it play out. Complaining has a role, for sure. Yeah, Yeah, let's be clear about that because we all do it. (laughs) Exactly. No one is perfect, right? But if you want to move beyond the situation that's making you complain in the first place, Mm -hmm. you have to reach a point where you say, okay, yeah, this is unfortunate, Mm -hmm. but what can I do about it to change that situation? So if you just stay in the complaining realm, because complaining itself is sort of a safety valve, right? It kind of lets off some steam. And so then you think, oh, okay, problem Mm -hmm. solved. And then pretty soon you're complaining about the same thing again. So instead, if you can say, what can I do about it to change it so I'm not complaining about it in the future? That's, I think, the opportunity. 
Which brings us to the second point, which is that you espouse moving in this move toward abundance to boldly and clearly articulate the change you want to see. So I think a lot of times in the social change sector, because we're so steeped in scarcity, we rarely take a big step back and say, what do I really want to create in the world? What's my ultimate goal? And I see this all the time with the organizations that I work with. So what I encourage them to do and help them do is create a theory of change which is really a, just a simple set of five strategic questions, the most important of which is what changed conditions do you want to see in the world because of your work? What outcomes are you hoping to achieve? When you can articulate that and get very clear about that, then abundance can start to flow to that. Board members start to get excited and engaged. Funders start to understand, oh, that's what you're doing. That sounds really good to me. I want to be part of that. Staff starts to understand their piece of the puzzle and gets more excited about their work. So all of these things start to align, but you have to really articulate, what do you want to do? What are you ultimately working towards? It is fundamentally that shift from the negative to the positive. Mm -hmm. You also have this notion of time that you talk about and the, the, the importance of the word yet in that. Mm -hmm. You even talk about how Sesame Street's a great example of this. So would you talk a little bit about why the concept of yet matters? For me, I was introduced to the concept through Sesame Street. Janelle Monet did a song called The Power of Yet. <laughs> Dear, two plus two, oh. oh boy, Emma will never get it right. You tried to add, but the numbers came out wrong. You tried to sing, but you didn't know the whole song. You tried to cook, but the booty didn't taste right. You tried to dunk, but you didn't get enough hype. You didn't do it right now, but keep trying. You learn how. You just didn't get it yet, but you get it soon, I bet. That's the power of the yet. Yet, yet, yet. That's the power of the yet. Yet, 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 yet. Yet, I think, is the ultimate bridge between scarcity and abundance. It provides you this opportunity to recognize the current state of scarcity that you exist in, right? You recognize that, but you say, but that doesn't have to be the future as well. There could be more on the other side of this, and that's the bridge of yet. So you take a sentence that I hear so often in the nonprofit sector, which is, you know, we don't have enough resources, we don't have enough money. But if you attach the word yet to that, we don't have enough money yet. That then encourages you to say, well, what could the opportunity be? What are the possibilities there? Whatever it is, the yet provides that bridge to, there could be something more out there for us. It's also very empowering because it acknowledges that we don't have to solve it all, all at once or get to that true north all at once. You then talk about the importance of gathering allies as a critical third step. I'm wondering, what have you seen in the massive social change movements that have been at the forefront of our country in the past year that you think others in the social re change realm can also learn from and that illustrate the point you're making around allies? So there's this concept of the networked nonprofit, which I didn't come up with. It's um, Jay, Jane Way Skillern, who's brilliant, sort of penned this idea several years ago. It's this idea of instead of seeing your organization, your nonprofit organization as, you know, sort of a lone wolf in the wilderness trying to, you know, deal with social change, you instead start to map your network, start to say, what are the other organizations out there that are have similar or related missions? Who are the influence? 
influencers or policymakers that might, you know, be interested in kind of what we're doing or, or have, you know, uh, be kindred spirits in some of this work, um, funders, et cetera, sort of mapping the whole universe of people, organizations, movements out there that could align with pieces of your work and then starting to move forward as a network can be such a powerful thing. And, and I see this, I do a lot of work in the democracy space, uh, journalism, and and I think they've done this really well. Funders are doing lots of collaboration around democracy funding. All of these new organizations that are cropping up to deal with myths and disinformation, fake news, things like that, they're collaborating beautifully. It's really become this network of folks that are really banding together in defense of democracy. And it's really kind of neat to see. We're seeing this process emerge, I think, more with the movements that have emerged over the past year. So Greta Thunberg illustrates this, I think, Mm -hmm. on the climate front. She's a symbolic head, but she's not, quote unquote, leading the global movement. Mm -hmm. She's just gathering allies in the global movement. I think similarly, we've seen a lot of that sort of networked structure in the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. I can imagine organization heads saying, and I've actually heard this, that that's great for the movement, but I don't head a movement. I head an organization. I have a board and my board wants to know about the fate of my organization. And how, as you give this example of movements, can you encourage organizational leaders to learn from that without thinking they have to be the movement itself. It goes back to this this scarcity thing of of in those boardrooms thinking, okay, well, we have to protect our organization. How is this going to impact our organization if we join this movement or we join this network? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think board source... Um, uh, Anne Wallstead is in her group are doing some fantastic work around this very question, which is how do you move from you know being focused on your mission to being a leader that's focused on the larger social change mission? And that's the shift that needs to happen in those boardrooms is to stop thinking, how does this impact my organization? And instead say, how does this impact the larger social change goal? Because honestly, that's the only way we're going to get to this healthier and more equitable world if we stop siloing these social change efforts and really start to think about them as part of a much larger entity. But the first step is to take down those walls and move away from that defensive, protective mindset and instead say, how do we move our larger social change mission forward and who do we bring along to do that? Who inspires you? So many women. One of Right now, one of my biggest inspirations is Anne Morrow Lindbergh who people don't know a whole lot about, but she was the wife of Charles Lindbergh, the pilot. But she herself was a tremendous writer. Much smarter than her husband, by the way. Oh my God, yes. (laughs) And just a beautiful writer. But she, you know, it's just, I think, a brilliant example of someone with tremendous talent, so much to offer the world, but also struggled herself internally. You know, am I providing value? Am I Mm -hmm. doing, you know, all of my different roles in the right way? And that to me is just so inspiring to see that, you know, we all struggle. We all are just trying to do our best, both in the public sphere and the private sphere. So to me, that's just very inspiring to see that. The name of this program is We Can Be. I'd love to know what your vision is for what the world can be or what we can be. Mm -hmm. How would you end that sentence? We can be a world that takes much better care of each other and of the planet. 
One of the hardest aspects of working in the social change sector is how there never seems to be enough. Not enough time, not enough money, not enough resources, not enough kindness and compassion in the world to meet all the need that exists. Yet there is another way of looking at this work as an incredible opportunity, as an opportunity to tap into a bounty and abundance of compassion if we can only think differently about the challenges before us. That's precisely what Nell Edgington is proposing. She mentions Anne-Mara Lindbergh as someone whose life and writing has inspired her. One of the things that Anne Lindbergh said was that only in growth, reform, and change, paradoxically enough, is true security to be found. It's easy to see echoes of Nell and her work in that quote. She talked about the necessity of addressing institutional shortcomings if we are to realize the full potential of those working for social change. Those institutionalized barriers, including the sexist history of undervaluing the social change community, must come down, and Nell is helping that to happen. She's laid out a plan that helps individuals and organizations working for social change to harness their true power. First, by moving from complaining to action, then by clearly articulating the change we want to see, and I think magically and brilliantly adding the word yet after sentences that seem limiting. Third, by finding allies, reaching out and working together to create new networks of social change that greatly magnify our own power. And perhaps most importantly, she also adds to do it all with a sense of joy. As Nell said here, we are infinitely more powerful in creating social change or really in doing anything when we approach it from a place of joy. This conversation has given me a sense of the potential of our sector if we can see it in a new and more promising light.